Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you this uh, evening. And uh, I was thinking, as you said about this uh, sermon uh, on Mars Hill, uh, we were discussing in the family that uh, during this time, uh, my family gets to hear the same sermon several times. And um, that doesn't usually happen. But uh, uh, when I was young, my dad used to preach on Acts 17 uh, when we were in the US. So I heard that sermon several, several times. So maybe it was, it was a good thing I wasn't here this morning. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, first, I'd like to share just a few things with you about our ministry, uh, just to uh, quickly uh, present some things, and then we will move on to the message from the Word. But um, as uh, was mentioned, my name's Jeff Baldwin. My parents, Bill and Marion Baldwin, were missionaries of this church for many years. And uh, I'm married to Mary, and she's Greek. And then we have three uh, kids, William, who's 21, Paul is 19, and Danae is 17. And we serve with Greater Europe Mission in Greece, where I'm the director of the Greek Bible College, and I speak in a church there regularly. Now, my parents uh, came, to me, came with me to Greece in 1966. So I grew up in Greece, went to Greek schools, and I'm fluent in the Greek language. And Greece is a country of great spiritual indifference. Even though 98% of the country are considered nominally Greek Orthodox, few people ever read the Bible or attend church or really care to follow Christ. Muslims and Catholics are about 2%, and then evangelicals are only 0.2% of the population. Now, in the year 2000, Greece was a country of widespread optimism. Greece was entering the Eurozone, and everything was going to be better. That is where everyone had placed their trust, and I could even feel it when I preached. It's as if people were thinking, keep saying what you're saying, preacher, but we know where our hope is. The Euro will save us. Within 10 years, Greece became a land of widespread despair. One after another, factories, companies, stores were shut down. 25% unemployment, much higher if you're young. Suicides increased exponentially. A neo-Nazi political party came out of nowhere and got 7% of the vote. And many have said that the recovery could take 20 to 30 years. Imagine being a young person and being told that your country might recover economically in 20 to 30 years. People are beginning to listen to the sermons now. Despair seems a natural reaction. For years, the Greek people bowed down to another god, Mammon, instead of coming to know the God that is revealed in the scriptures. Knowing Christ through the scriptures is the answer. And so we serve at the Greek Bible College, the only Bible college in Greece. We know that we have the answer to Greece's woes, but the Greek people don't know that yet. Years ago, I realized as the director of the school that we had to do everything in our power to earn respect so that our voice could be heard in Greece. In order to generate the best graduates, we must be able to attract the most promising students. So we have worked hard to be the best Bible college in the world. Now, of course, we're very small. We may have a ways to go. Our resources are limited, but we aim high. And we have done much. We've created a beautiful campus. We've managed to get accreditation at various levels. Our library in the last few years has gone from 3,000 volumes to 20,000 volumes, and that's a very small number for uh, colleges and seminaries in North America, but it is actually the largest biblical library in Greece. 
We are the only Bible college in the world where students arrive with a working knowledge of Greek. We're a force of unity as we work with various denominations. We've managed to make the school self-sufficient for its operational cost by renting our facilities out during the summer. And our students are involved in all kinds of ministries on the front lines, such as refugee ministries or ministry to women who are victims of trafficking and prostitution. So we watch as our graduates have gone on to serve the Lord as pastors and Christian workers. And in recent years, I've been able to see former students of mine returning to become faculty or staff members with PhDs, either from the Greek University, from Wheaton College, and even from Cambridge University. We've built much, but Greece has not fully discovered us yet. In 2008, the Greek government formed a new law on private colleges that almost destroyed us. The regulations were overwhelming. New and different accreditation standards, building code, fire safety code, and even a $700,000 bank guarantee, all of these standards came at us all together with ultimatums. And we felt completely helpless. I confess to you that for the last six years, I have fought with a fear that it would soon all be over. Yet every year, some other miracle kept us afloat for a little longer. By last year, we had solved every single problem the government created for us, except for one. We could not get our academic building recognized. On the photo, our land is outlined in the blue. And as you can see, a green line separates the residential zone from the non-residential zone. The line cuts through our land, but our current academic building is on the wrong side. We tried every possible solution for years. Nothing worked. But last year, the lady who owned the property directly next door to us, you can see the purple outline there, she decided she would sell at half price. And just a few weeks ago, the papers were signed and we were able to purchase the only land adjacent to us that can solve our problem. So this is an enormous miracle for us, and now we covet your prayers as we go into the next stage of, a, of, of building an academic facility on that land. This not only solves our legal problem with the government, but it actually gives our school an opportunity to expand. In fact, all the laws that seemed against us have ultimately worked for us. So this is how I feel. In this photo, there I am, a little tiny human, standing on the roof of the Greek Bible College. And if you look closely high above, there is a rainbow. That sums up how I, I have felt the last few years. So thank you for allowing me to share with you a little bit about our ministry, a glimpse of our story. And to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.grbc.gr or just Google Greek Bible College and we'll be there on the first page and you'll find us. And you can also find their information about a program that we have, a one-year program in Bible and theology that is taught in English, and it's a great cross-cultural experience for a young person who can spend a year in Greece learning the Bible in the land where some of it was written. So uh, I uh, hope that we can discuss that later if you are interested in that, and uh, certainly we can keep in touch, and of course you can find all that information on our website. So thank you for listening about the ministry, now, before we go to the Word, please let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you, Lord, for the great gift of your Word. And we pray, Lord, that as we seek to understand the words that you have written to us, 
that you would give us your insight, that you would help us to understand your wisdom, that you would give us your eyes to see you, to see your word, to understand our world better. We leave ourselves in your hands, in Christ's name, amen. I'd like to speak this evening about a story that is well known. It's so well known that some might think that it's pointless to even speak about it. Because we've read the text, we know the story, and you know what, how it goes. Familiarity, they say, breeds contempt, or perhaps familiarity breeds some degree of indifference. Hey, I know that story. It's the story about the guy that walks down this road, he's attacked by robbers, he falls into a ditch, and then a priest goes by, and then a Levite goes by, and then a good Samaritan comes by, helps this person, and we all understand that that's the story, and we always say, basically, the message is, hey, if you see somebody lying on the ditch on the side of the road, help the person out. That's usually the extent to which we go in our application of the story. I'd like to suggest to you that that's absolutely correct, but it simply doesn't go far enough. And I'd like to suggest that we could go deeper on this packed passage today. So let's look at this story. Now, first of all, if ever, do we remember the context of the parable? So look at, let's look at the context, verse 25 in Luke chapter 10. We read the following. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it sounds like a simple theological question, and here we would have, you know, the four spiritual laws, Romans Road, some kind of simple gospel message that we might give to this person, but Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. He knows this person is not asking the question in good faith. This man is tempting Christ. So Christ's first move is to reverse the question. He's speaking here to a lawyer, but not in our sense. We're talking about an expert in the law of the Old Testament, a man who might have been eager to show Christ's deficiency in the law. He thus avoids the trap brilliantly by asking this question. We read in verse 26. And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? In other words, hey, you're a lawyer. You tell me. Remember, Jesus had said that he came to fulfill the law. The lawyer res responds with a well-known verse in order to again receive an answer from Christ. We read in verse 27, And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now this is a correct move on the part of the lawyer. Jesus himself had said the same thing at some other point about the summary of the law. The Ten Commandments, as well as the 613 other commandments of the law, can be summarized in two, full-hearted love toward God and full-hearted love toward our neighbor. Behind every command of the law, there is the demand to love God with your whole being, heart, soul, mind, strength, everything. Love God with all your thoughts, emotions, decisions, and deeds. You cannot and should not love God with only one part of yourself because you're an integrated being. And you love your neighbor as yourself. So what would be the method of doing that? Well, in, in a sense, Jesus is saying, for a moment, you have to almost think selfishly. You know, what do I want people to do for me? 
You think selfishly, what do I want? How would I want to be loved? Right? And then you take a second step. Now, the first step comes naturally. We all know how to think selfishly. And the second step requires a little more effort. You ask yourself about other people. To cons- you, you begin to consider the self of another human being as important as your own self. So if I need certain things to feel loved, I project those things onto someone else, and I do for that person all the things I would want to be done for me. But there is a crucial element in the way I think about this, and that you can miss this easily. I actually have to place myself in somebody else's shoes. I have to place myself in their circumstances so I can understand and see life from their perspective. Usually we don't go there. At any rate, Jesus agrees with the lawyer and says, good, do this and you will live. The law expert had asked how to inherit eternal life. The word eternal makes you think of endless life. It makes you think of the quantity of life. But Jesus is saying, do this and you will live. Jesus is intentionally shifting the emphasis from quantity to quality. We usually ask the question of eternal life in rather selfish and at least individualistic terms, when in fact heaven means the abolishment of our selfishness. Christ is saying that loving God wholeheartedly and your neighbor as yourself is the real deal. It's life itself. It is quality of life. When you do that, that's when you're really living the way you were created to live. You're living the life you were created for, born for, meant for, destined for. And yes, that life ends up being endless in quantity because it is of such great quality. Well, it's all well and good up to this point, and now we'll go into the nitty-gritty. A new question comes to the foreground. We read in verse 29, But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? This is the second time that Luke mentions the motive of the lawyer. In the first case, his motive was to test Jesus. In the second case, the motive is to justify himself. It's amazing how much energy we human beings spend trying to justify ourselves. The fact is that when you try to justify yourself, reality gets distorted. You don't see clearly. So the lawyer says, okay, the law is summarized in these two commands. Love God wholeheartedly, love your neighbor as yourself. Great, who's my neighbor? I mean, you can't love seven billion people in the world as yourself, can you? And after all, every individual, every foundation, every missions committee, every charity has difficult decisions to make about who to help, when, and how. True. But notice that the objection raises the issue of definitions and limits. Why do you need limits? Well, you create specific limits because you're seeking to justify yourself. If there are specific limits, well, then you can always say in the end, hey, I fulfilled the exact demands of the law. I'm a righteous person. I was within my limits in all that I did. Therefore, I'm righteous. It's that simple. Well, if there's no limits, well, then you're not quite sure about yourself. Now, there's a slight problem with that word neighbor in this passage. And I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson here. And this can be missed even by people who use Greek dictionaries. When we think of neighbor in English, 
We think in terms of people who live nearby. We think of neighborhoods and communities. We think of near dwellers. But the Greek word here is the word plision. And the word plision, which you find in your Bibles as the word neighbor, and in fact in many dictionaries it will just say neighbor, actually means only one thing. The Greek word means near. Near. You can say that an object is near. This pulpit is near to me. Or you can say that a person is near to you. It is not referring to a person who dwells near you, a near dweller. It is referring to a person who is near you, a near person. So the man says, who is my near? Give me a geographical radius for my love. So from now on in this passage, I'll be using the word near person, a word I made up instead of the, the biblical, uh, the uh, translation here, neighbor. The real question here then that this man is asking is, who is my near person? And another way you could say it is this, how far is near? Here's the response, and this is where the parable begins. We read in the next verse, verse 30, Jesus replied and said, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. A certain man. There's no adjective to describe what kind of man this is. We don't know where he's from, what his job is, what his education is, what country or city he's from. We only know about him one characteristic. He's a certain man. He's, in a sense, every man, a human being. And there's something very subtle here. The question that is implicitly raised for us is, do you identify with this man? Remember, when the lawyer came and asked, who is my near person? He asked as a respected lawyer. He asked from the security of his position in society. He asked as, you might say, a benefactor. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a benefactor on our hands. This man is above it all. He's asking who he should help. He will never need help, right? He's the one who's above it all, deciding who to help. But Jesus deconstructs this. The law says to love your neighbor as yourself, and you're not really loving your neighbor as yourself when all your supposed loving is done from your aloof position in your own little heaven from which you refuse to come down. Loving your near person as yourself means that you must place yourself in the position of this poor man. That's you in the ditch. You're the one who's been hurt and wounded. Now look at life from that perspective. We'll come back to this in a while. So from Jerusalem, where God's temple was, this man is traveling east to another city, Jericho of the Old Testament. Now remember, a parable is a story that is made up to make a point. A parable is not a, a, a historical event. But Jesus doesn't mention just any random road here. He mentions a particular road, the road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now some say the reason is that it was a dangerous road with robbers, and that may well be true. But I think there's something more here. When you went on a pilgrimage to worship God in Jerusalem, there were two ways to get up north. 
One was to go through Samaria, through mountainous roads and so forth, and, or the other way was to go down to Jericho, and then you'd be close to the Jordan, and you could just walk next to the river, have that water close by, and walk up to the north that way. Oftentimes, you might prefer the river road. Plus, hey, why go through Samaria? They're not your people. They're not the people you particularly like. If you took the road east to Jericho, then you could travel next to the water. So this man walks on this road towards Jericho, and bandits attack him, beat him up, take his clothes. So this man has about a 50-50 chance of living. Now, he probably is asking God for help in this ditch. What else can you do? He probably is praying, asking God for some help. And we know that God is a God who could, of course, zap someone from heaven and heal him immediately. But for some reason, God likes to make people cooperate with him, and he likes to send people along to help in the situation. So he's praying, will anybody come? And we read in verse 31, by chance a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Some translations say a priest happened to be going by. This translation says by chance. Another word that's kind of good here, I think, is by coincidence. So by coincidence, a priest happens to be coming by. Maybe after all, the world is not as bad as we thought. I had to face the robbers, who are the worst specimens of society, but here I've got a priest. He's one of the best specimens of society. I had bad luck, and now I've got good luck. You understand I'm using those words tongue-in-cheek, because when any person in the days of Jesus would hear of such a coincidence, his mind would immediately go to God. He would say that this coincidence is a God thing. Coincidence means miracle. God is here. Priest means representative of God. So yes, God is definitely here. God is going to act through this cluster of events, through his own man, his representative, his ambassador. If you are a priest, that's the way you think. You are God's feet and hands on the earth. God is serving others through you. God called you to serve him by serving others. And here before you is another. But we read that the priest just passed by. Just passed by, didn't even look. You know, it's strange that all my life I have read this passage and just assumed that the passage said the priest just passed by. But in fact, if you look more carefully, it doesn't say that. It says that he stopped, excuse me, he looked, and then secondly, it doesn't say that he passed by. It says that he passed by on the other side. On the other side. Now, why is that significant? Well, certainly by passing to the other side, the priest can act like he didn't see. He can put blinders on and play, play a nice little game with himself, telling himself the lie that he didn't actually meet that wounded man. For after all, he was on the other side. But the most important issue is this. The priest passed by on the other side in order to create distance between himself and this man. He passed over to the other side because he did not want to be near. 
He did not want to consider this person a near person. It's as if circumstances were bringing him to come near, but he saw it from a far away. Maybe his GPS was pre-programmed to avoid such situations. You know, his global positioning system was such that he just managed to always not be in the location where these things happened. It's a life strategy. The priest chose to take the path that would create a distance, the path of unneighboring. We don't know exactly what the priest's motive was. Some say that he was afraid he might be attacked by the robbers as well. Others say he was in a hurry. Others say he didn't want to put up with the hassle. Some say maybe he was afraid of being polluted by an unclean person because he'd just been at the temple. We don't know. We always make up excuses and rationalizations. Then we have the Levite, verse 32. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So the Levite does exactly the same. He doesn't just pass by. He, too, passes by on the other side. And, you know, you, create, you can create distance in your mind by also just playing mind games, excuses in your mind. You could politicize the matter. What is the government doing about this situation with the robbers on the road? Or in Greece, they would say, oh, look at the results of capitalism. The Levite is somewhere between a priest and a layperson, you might say. So the text seems to be moving in a logical direction. You're saying the priest, and then the Levite, and then you're expecting to hear the layperson from the synagogue, right? You know, pastor, deacon, elder, deacon, whatever, and then the person from the church. But Jesus is all out of order here. We read in verse 33, but a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Instead of a simple layperson, we have a Samaritan. Now, this is completely unexpected. You're expecting to hear about just a regular guy on the road. Suddenly, there's this Samaritan fellow, and what is he doing here? It's as if he's been parachuted in for the story. This road does not come from Samaria. It does not lead to Samaria. He's the last thing you would expect in the story. This road, in fact, goes around Samaria. It bypasses Samaria. It creates distance from Samaria. Now, you can't exclude that a Samaritan fellow would walk down this road. There was business and commerce between Jews and Samaritans, like there is everywhere between peoples who may not like each other. But listen to the difference. A priest and a Levite traveling from Jerusalem. They were almost certainly at the temple. Doing what? Presumably, they were fulfilling that first part of the law. They were loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind. And then they left from there on the road to the real world, so to speak, presumably to love their neighbor as themselves. But one thing is certain about this Samaritan guy. Whatever he was doing in Jerusalem, he wasn't at the temple. Samaritans did not worship at the temple in Jerusalem. But there's something even more remarkable. The good Samaritan is on the road that you would take if you wanted to bypass Samaria. If you had the slightest desire not to meet Samaritans, this is the road you take. 
If you've been raised up all your life to think of Samaritans as lowly, ugly, disgusting, unclean, subhuman humans, hey, go on to Jericho so you can take the pleasant journey by the river. Don't be inconvenienced. For the Jews, a Samaritan was considered by definition an unbeliever. They were considered unbelievers because they were considered violators of the law, and Jesus is talking to a law expert. Christ is saying that this supposed violator of the law, this despised foreigner, came to the place. He drew near to the place. He saw what was happening. He didn't close his eyes to it. He didn't theorize about it. He saw with his heart, and he faced what he saw, and he had compassion. He felt the wounds of this wounded man. Remember the lawyer said that the law is summarized in loving God with all your heart? This man had a heart. And this man also showed the wounded man their treatment that he would have wanted for himself. It's amazing how often, even in Christian circles, we somehow get away from a heart of compassion. You know, living in Greece these last few years, one of the other problems that Greece faces is a massive uh, entry of refugees from all kinds of Arab countries, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran. All of these people are coming into Europe through Greece. And there's all kinds of people, homeless people, living on the streets with no food, with very little shelter. Some of the young people in our church and some other churches got together. 15, 16, 17-year-old kids. No adult involvement. They got together, they got organized. And they began to make sandwiches on a couple, every couple Saturdays. They'd make sandwiches and they would go and distribute these sandwiches out to the people who are homeless out of a heart of compassion. No adults involved. Simple reaction to what the Lord puts on people's hearts. I don't know why in adulthood we seem to get away from that often. We read that this man in verse 34, we read, he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. But here it says, notice, he came to, he approached, he drew near. The other person was not a near person. He was a far person. But the Samaritan drew near and made him a near person. And this reflects God's heart for all of us. Remember the words of Paul in Ephesians to the Gentiles? Listen to this text. Paul speaking to the Ephesian Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God didn't dwell close to us. God came close to us. He left his heaven to come to us. He brought us near. He came near and brought us near. It's the same word, by the way. So then the Samaritan found practical solutions to his problems, right? To real problems, not imaginary problems, to real problems, which 
we notice he tied his wounds, which probably meant he had to tear some of his own clothes to have cloth to do so. He put oil on the wounds to reduce the pain and wine as an antiseptic, which means they had to give up those things for himself. He didn't pull them out of some hoped-for drawer of ever-flowing oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, which means that from now on, he himself journeyed on foot rather than first class. Then he took him to a hotel and was there for him that first night while he was in intensive care. And then he made sure that the expenses, whatever other expenses there were, would be paid for. So the Samaritan did all this. He saw the problem and did something. Now, we may think, okay, this is a story from ancient times, this sort of thing, you know, does it really happen here? Let me give you a more contemporary example. A few years ago, Steven Spielberg had put out a movie called Schindler's List. And it's the story of a German businessman during the Second World War, who even though he was a businessman, interested mostly in profit, he found in his heart to hire as many Jews as possible for his business and thereby save their lives from death in concentration camps. Now the movie basically tells the story, it's a true story, and of course we think to ourselves this is merely a story about a man who helped some people during this uh, circumstance. But that's not the end of the story. As the philosopher Slavoj Zizek has noted, there's a deeper message here. Because after the Second World War, many Germans shook their heads and said, well, what could we have done? We couldn't do anything. Our hands were tied. We were forced to comply. We had our families to feed and protect. We couldn't do anything. Spielberg's movie tells the story of a man who did something. But if someone under those circumstances actually did something, then that is implicit proof that something could have been done. And if something could have been done and was not done, then those who did not do it must bear a measure of responsibility. I'm giving this example not in order to accuse the German people. It is a trend in Greece these days. But in order to show, in order to show that what would it would, would have meant for us to have a movie of our own lives played, and what would that look like? How did we set up our lives? You know, being near, right? Think about it this way. If you live in Beverly Hills, do you think you're going to meet up with lots of people lying in the ditch on the side of the road? So if you choose the location you want to be in, you basically guarantee you'll never meet up with this kind of situation. You've already created the distance. This is why Christ's final question is significant. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? This question is the answer to the question of the lawyer. He had asked as a benefactor, but Jesus shows him that identifying with a hurt man and seeing things from his perspective changes the form of the question. When you're wounded and hurting and you need help, you would never ask the question, uh, let's see, who is my neighbor? You'll take anybody as a neighbor. I'll anybody can help me. I'll allow it. Right? 
So if you're not asking the question that way, you really haven't loved somebody as yourself, have you? The lawyer had asked, who's my near person? Jesus says, who became a near person to the wounded man? It doesn't ask who was or is. It asks who became. Maybe you was born in a rich family and you never did see great human need. Maybe you is, is a North American and you just have a good head start above the rest of humanity. But Jesus is saying what you is and what you are is not the issue. The issue is what you become. The issue is where you go. The issue is what you do with the life you've been given. The issue is not your identity, but your movement. You're not to ask, who is my near person? You're to ask, how do I become a near person? How do I turn far persons into near persons? How do I become a person who draws near? How do I become a person who covers distance rather than a person who creates distance or who maintains distance by just sitting still? in order to use distance as an excuse. As an excuse not to fulfill the law's demands of love for those who are near me. Love, the fulfillment of the law, cannot be controlled or thwarted or stopped or reined in. It rushes forward and no place is far enough for the reach of love. Some time ago I read a blog by a Christian author was basically saying, you know, that our responsibilities to others are kind of like in concentric circles. Okay, you got your family, then you got your local church, and then you've got your local community, and then you've got your state, and then you've got your country, and then you've got the whole rest of the world. And you got to start going in this way, right? But see, it's nice and structured, nicely packaged, but there's a nagging question here. Is your local community an unchangeable given? What if you have distanced yourself from another community in order to be part of this local community? I knew of a church that used to be in the inner city and they moved out, right? So now their new responsibility is a nice place in the suburbs, sure. If you do that, you pretty much guarantee you'll see fewer wounded people on the road, that's true, yes. The answer to the question here is obvious. Verse 37. He said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. The one who showed mercy. The one who showed compassion. So at the end of our story, our example is not the priest or the Levite, but a Samaritan. Because no matter what position you may have in the church, if you don't have love and compassion, you are nothing. Now, the law expert spoke with Jesus and tried to justify himself. That's how this story began, with a man who tried to justify himself before Jesus. But friends, that is not the way to hear the word of the Lord. The way to hear the word of the Lord is to hang your head. And accept that you are not living up to his standards. Confess and repent and ask God for his help. Confess that we spend much of our lives building castles that place us in comfort zones 
that legitimize limits on love. To ask that God the Holy Spirit would create a new spirit within us of love that flows to the farthest corners of the earth. To ask that God would make us mission-minded. In the Gospel of John, there's this beautiful verse. We read John 4. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. He had to go. No, we already know there was no geographical necessity. You could take the low road by the river, the scenic drive, if you will, the path that pretends that Samaritans aren't even there. But no, Jesus had to go through Samaria because he was mission-minded. He had to go because he was the ultimate fulfiller of the law who loved beyond his borders because love always overflows. Jesus walked the distance and endured the thirst because love necessitated that he must cross the borders of hate and prejudice. And Christ promised his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit, right? Remember? Acts 1.8. He would send the Holy Spirit, and they would become his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and... No, they're not going to take that well-traveled road to Jericho and by the river. No. They're going to take that difficult path that goes through Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Obedience to the Great Commission is fulfillment of God's law of love. Going to the ends of the earth with the gospel is the surest proof that we cover every possible distance. We climb every mountain and we cross every river in order to come near to those who are far. So what was your question again? Oh, that's right. Who is my neighbor? Think about it. God bless you. Thank you.